to the 375 or so Proverbs in this next section from 10.1 to 22.16. Now after 22.16, we're still in Proverbs, but they're more grouped. From 10.1 to 22.16, they're not very grouped. Uh, in other words, you can be reading one verse and the next verse will change subjects. And then the next verse will change subjects again. I'm not saying it does that always. But it does it a lot. And uh, it makes it seem sort of random. Now maybe there's a point to that. You know, people study Proverbs different ways. And sometimes people study Proverbs like, well, we'll get all the Proverbs on this subject and we'll talk about them. We'll get all the Proverbs on this subject and talk about that. That's not all bad. There's some value in that for sure. But that is not the way Solomon had this written. You know, it, why would you write this where you're kind of throwing in Proverbs on different subjects, just write one after another? Because different subjects come up one right after another in your life. I think that's exactly right. You know, when you're living your life, it's not like, okay, this year I'm going to follow the Proverbs on this, and next year it'll be the Proverbs on that. You know, you happen to find a variety of principles that you need as you're going through each day. And it seems to me like Proverbs in this section is sort of written that way. To where we have kind of the variety we need for life's everyday challenges. So we're going to go through this a proverb at a time. Just the way it's written. And uh, I think there is some real value in that. You will see more connections as you do that, maybe than you first thought there were. But there's not a lot, lot. J.D.? Uh, yeah, I kind of find, I don't know if anyone else uh, feels the same way, if I have a list of all 30 proverbs about laziness, I read like three, I'm like, okay, I get it. Don't be lazy. But if you see, you see two of those in every chapter, and that is repeated, that's a lot more helpful, it's a lot more of a reminder, a lot more, like as you go through and you read it naturally, I just find that, and that's just very helpful. Yes, absolutely. And then there's all the Proverbs that cover more than one subject, and what do you do with them, and so forth. So I think there's a lot of value in this. Now, in this section, 10.1 to 22.16, I think there are some broad general divisions. And uh, I would suggest that in the first maybe uh, four or five chapters here, you have a lot of antithetical proverbs. That is opposite ones. You know, the righteous is this, the wicked are that. The wise man does this, the fool does that. And that sort of thing. Close to 90% of the Proverbs in say chapters 10 to 14 or so are opposite Proverbs. Now there's some beyond that too, but the percentage goes down quite a bit. Um, a lot of these Proverbs are act consequence and even more are character consequence. Lots of consequence Proverbs. So. That's kind of what we're going to be looking at, especially the righteous and the wicked. In about 39 verses in these next six chapters, it's going to be contrast between the righteous and the wicked. So we're getting, going to get a lot of those. Other thoughts and comments before we go into chapter 10? All right, would somebody read 1 to 5? Proverbs of Solomon. A wise son makes a father glad, but a foolish son is grieved to his mother. Ill-gotten gains do not profit, but righteousness delivers from death. The Lord will not allow the righteous to hunger, but he will thrust aside the craving of the wicked. Poor is he who works with a negligent hand, for the hand of the diligent makes rich. He who gathers in summer is a son who acts wisely, but he who sleeps and harvests is a son who acts shamefully. Alright, so, these are the Proverbs of Solomon, that's sort of the heading for this section. Verse 1, a wise son makes a father glad, but a foolish son is a grief to his mother. When we say wise and foolish here, we're talking about what? Intellect? Behavior. Behavior, morality. 
not talking about whether you're smart or dumb, whether you got a good score on your SAT or not. We're talking about, you know, wisdom in life and behavior. And what does this proverb say? That much of the happiness of the family depends on the behavior of the children. Did you, have you ever thought about that? You know, really no son or daughter can avoid bringing either pleasure or pain to their parents. Sometimes it's first one and then the next. But, but, but children really affect their parents' well-being. Can you think of some children that brought grief to their parents in the Bible? Absalom and several of David's other sons, like Amnon and Adonijah and so forth. Yes, who were the sons of Eli. Wow, they complicated his life. Yeah, Esau, perhaps in some ways, brought grief to Isaac. Samuel's sons were wicked, and that was a, a grief for Samuel. Um, so, I want you guys to think about this. Many of you live at home, that is, you live with your parents. How many times as children do we mostly focus on how our parents are doing with their job? It seems to be a popular thing to think about when you're a child. Well, my parents aren't very good with this, and they're pretty mean about that, and I don't think they made a very wise choice there. Do we ever think about uh, our sonly or daughterly behavior and responsibility and how much effect we can have on our family by how we behave? No, it's not just responsibilities to parents. Now, will Proverbs say things to parents? Yeah, quite a few. But he says a lot of things to children or to sons and daughters. And, and here, you'll make a big difference in your family's emotional and mental health. By, by how, how you do it. That, that's a responsibility to it. Now, conversely, I do think this passage says something to parents. If verse 1 is true, what should parents do? Man, you need to prioritize training your children to be wise. It will be worth it in the long run. Thoughts and comments on that verse? Would it be appropriate to uh, apply this to our spiritual family as well? Yes, I think you could. Certainly. Paul had some sons, like Titus and Timothy, and uh, when they were wise, they would make him glad, and certainly when they were foolish, that was a grief to him. No doubt about that. In the same vein, I mean, God is our Father, certainly on, on a large level, and, you know, he's, his emotions are very clearly tied into our behavior and our righteousness. Good point. Peter? Is there a significance to the separation of the father and the mother there? Makes the father glad and brings grief to the mother? <laughs> it is possible, though there's so much parallelism here, I'm not sure that there's really that much difference. Because obviously both parents are uh, glad when their son is wise and grieve when their son is foolish. I know perhaps mothers tend to struggle more with the grief in that and the father's more in the joy. I'm not sure that that's the case. Other thoughts? When thinking about um, uh, how to honor our parents and to respect them, I think it's good to remember to be the kind of child that you want to one day raise. Because you know, when you're in that position and you're going to be raising your own kids, then uh, you, you can't be a good parent unless you think about, well, um, I need to be right now. I'm I'm in the position of the child, so I need to be the, the right kind of child right now, and not the way the parent would act. What if you reap what you sow in that? <laughs> and you may, you know, that's a good point. And I would just say again, just thinking about this, I think children need to recognize the responsibility they have. I have been more impressed by experience just seeing various families in recent years 
how much impact children have, even on the spiritual well-being of their families. I mean, I know some families where there were good parents overall, spiritually minded people, and because their children started going badly, the, ch- the parents left the Lord. I know some others where the children have done well, and I really think that has really built up the parents. And certainly, you know, unwise children can create tremendous confusion and, and difficulty and strife in the whole family, affect everybody. And really, wise children can be such a blessing. It makes a lot of difference. And again, I would say, as a, as a young person, we so much focus in on how do our parents do with their job. And maybe we don't even think about the fact, you know, we have a lot of impact, a lot of impact by our behavior. You will have some influence, more than likely, on your parents' eternal destiny. You know, that that makes a difference. And certainly on how they're doing right now. And and I think think recognizing a greater degree of responsibility in that. So we, we just don't tend to think about responsibilities of children. It's all on the parents. They got the responsibility. There's plenty of responsibility for parents. But hey, we're, we're accountable for our actions too. And in, a, in some cases, it's to whom much is given, much is required. There are many of you guys who have been much better raised than what your parents were. You have some responsibility in that. You know, everyone's, I, I, I know a lot of young people, who are probably stronger spiritually than their parents. Sometimes that leads to pride or disdain. But you know what I see in most of those cases? Their parents raised them tons better than what they were raised. They ought to be better. You know, every generation ought to stand on the shoulders of the one before. When God gives much, he expects much. And, and, And we have many of you have relatively good families. You need to be a blessing to them. And if you don't, they really need you to be a blessing to them. Comments? Look at verse 2. Ill-gotten gains do not profit, but righteousness delivers from death. You know, if you take moral shortcuts to get wealth, it won't, it won't help you in the long run. You know, doing things the right way is much more fundamental and important in the long run. Um, sometimes we want easy ways to get gain. We're lazy. But much better to do things the right way. Verse 3 kind of goes along with that. Why is it? that ill-gotten gains don't profit, and righteous delivers from the Lord. Because the Lord will not allow the righteous to hunger, but he'll reject the craving of the wicked. Kind of gives the rationale behind verse 2. It's not just that the world just functions this way. It's because God takes care of the righteous, and he thwarts the pursuit of the wicked. So the wicked, they're never satisfied. They never really enjoy what they crave. But God takes care of the righteous. So again, being righteous is, is, is more uh, helpful in, in getting what we really need and having some profit than what, than what just seeking after riches. We want to do things the right way. And in the long run, it'll be a blessing. Comments on two and three? There's a lot of ones like this. I didn't say all that could be said about two and three. I'm not really planning on it. But, but if you really looked at those two together, I think you can start seeing more and more connections between them. That's true of a lot of them. I think two and three are kind of companions. And, and look at four. Poor is he who works with a negligent hand, but the hand of the diligent makes rich. What does it mean, a negligent hand? Lazy. Yeah, 
lazy, poor work ethic, the guy who just doesn't work very hard, who doesn't try very hard, who cuts corners, he'll be poor. The diligent man, the guy who's persistent and works hard and takes responsibility, he'll be rich. You know, we all the time want to get something for nothing. It doesn't work that way. If you want to get something, you'll have to pursue it. You'll have to work. And I think sometimes we haven't learned that lesson very well. Think about this. You know, a hundred years ago, before my time, <clears throat> pretty much kids had to work from the time they were really small on the family farm and contribute to the family's prosperity so they had something to eat. Pretty much now, teenagers don't have to do anything and they can eat practically anything they want to. And it almost creates this illusion that really doesn't matter how hard you work, how diligent you are, you know, how disciplined you are, because, you know, everything's going to be provided to you on a silver platter. Real life is a painful experience to people who think that way. It's not the way real life is. You know, this is, and, and so we've got to learn even when we're young. You work hard. You're diligent. You, you, you put forth a lot of effort, and it pays off. No pain, no gain. Comments? <clears throat> yes. David. I think uh, uh, the financial guy who's on the radio said... Dave Ramsey. Yeah, Dave Ramsey. I think he has, had a saying at one time. I think it was him. You can work uh, smarter than maybe 10% of the people, but you can work 80% harder. 80. So you can outwork 80% of the people by just working harder. And so... That's really true. And in the long run, you know, who gets the promotions? Oh, the people who butter up the boss, the people who... You know, that's what we always say, but there's a lot of times that's not really what it was. You know, a lot of times, you know, think about this. Uh, there are some crooked bosses, there are some things that go on, but overall, who does the boss want working for him? <clears throat> The people get the job done because his evaluation is going to depend on how well his department performs. If you do the job well, you, you produce a lot, you know, you're effective, your quality is good, you're helping him. Mostly, he'll like that, and mostly if you don't, you're a drag on the whole system. You know, we, we, we look at all sorts of other factors, but mostly diligence prevails and negligence loses. That's just a, that, that's the way it is, most of the time. Don't think you'll be the exception. Other thoughts? Yeah, Stephen. I think a lot of times we you see this thing you know applied to physical things so much it's so easy to see like you know if I want to be a better athlete I got to train and if that training is not focused well you're not going to get better a whole lot and then we want to grow spiritually and we just kind of throw these things to the wind like oh well, this is something entirely different and we just kind of don't apply the same principles to like if you want to grow spiritually you have to plan ahead and you have to be focused and you have to train you have to have people to train with and like. It's easy to not make the connection. <clears throat> Absolutely. If you want to grow spiritually, you've got to be diligent and work hard. You know, I think even in this. You know, would you really like to know the Bible really well? Do you know some people who know the Bible really well? How did they get there? You know what? Some people think they're just really smart. That is not my observation. <laughs> the people I know who know the Bible really well are not particularly intelligent. They just really work hard. <laughs> 
it makes a lot more difference than intelligence. Maybe intelligence makes a very small part of that. But what I see is there are some not very bright people who know the Bible really well because they've worked hard, and there's some really smart people who haven't a clue. That's what it really takes. Other comments? Yeah, Katie. Uh, we had a friend in Tampa who was really diligent, really zealous for the Lord, and she was not a Christian her whole life, I don't even think. She knew lots and lots of scripture. Um, that was just, and she was encouraging and loved the Bible. We found out later, because of some uh, mental challenges she had, she only remembers about 50% of what she reads. And so her knowing that much scripture required so much more hard work than, than anyone else. I'm, I'm guessing in this room, I, I don't know. But I mean, just a lot, a lot of work because of her challenges. And she, she really knew a lot of her Bible. I, I mean, I, I definitely think in, in all aspects of spiritual life, the discipline, diligence, and persistence means so much more than natural ability. So much more. <coughs> Patrick. I think a lot of times, especially when it comes to things like Bible study, we don't study to learn. I think a lot of times we study our Bible because we know we should, or that's just what I do, or you want to know something a little bit better. We should be studying to learn. This is about God. This is about you know our Creator, our Father. And we get to learn about Him. And that should be our focus when we're studying. Some of you have been in athletics, like organized sports teams. Um, do all the guys practice equally diligently? Does it make a difference? It does, doesn't it? You know, maybe all the guys are go out for practice. You know, they're there every day. But the guys who really work hard in practice improve a lot. You know, if, if your goal is to learn the Bible, what are you going to do? You're going to read three chapters a day. So which chapter are you going to pick out? Short ones. Short ones. Uh, how, much, how long is it going to take you to read them? It's going to zoom. I read them. Don't have, don't remember anything it said, but I read them. Are you going to read them? And so forth and so on. You know, can you, can you imagine a guy He's in the weight room. But he's taking all kinds of shortcuts. I know nothing about weights. <laughs> but I assume there are some appropriate techniques that really do the trick and there's some other shortcuts that don't. You'll be able to tell sooner or later. You know, same thing with this. Dan. I think many times we're content with just, well, I'm working. We see this poor, this, this, this poor guy, well, well he's, he's working. Well, it's not just whether we work, whether we don't work, whether we read or you know, don't read, whether we go to church or don't go to church. It's how we treat that time that we give to those things. It's not just the fact that we're showing up or we're there. How are we using those times? How are we taking advantage of those opportunities? Exactly. Good point. Other thoughts? Great applications. Look at verse 5. He who gathers in summer is a son who acts wisely. But he who sleeps in harvest is a son who acts shamefully. You know, so you got to work diligently, verse 4, and at the right time, verse 5. You know, because when the garden is producing, you can just go out there and get what you need and you can eat it. But what happens if you don't can and freeze? You don't have it later on. It'll go to waste and you'll be hungry after that. You must put forth the effort for the future. You feel like, well, I've got all I need to eat right now. What do I need to can and freeze for? Well, if you want to have anything to eat next month or six months from now. So, you know, Work while you can. Take advantage of every opportunity. Notice also that verse 5 ties back into verse 1. This kind of forms a unit. Uh, 
I do think, like I said, I think there are some tie-ins. I think one to five is a little more closely tied in than some of the other sections. Thoughts and comments on one to five? Well, um, let's see. Let's do 6 to 14. Blessings are on the head of the righteous, but the mouth of the wicked conceals violence. The memory of the righteous is blessed. The name of the wicked will, be, will rot. The wise of heart will, be, will receive commands, but a battling fool will be thrown down. He who walks in integrity walks securely, but he who perverts his ways will be found out. He who winks the eye causes trouble, and a babbling fool will be thrown down. The mouth of the righteous is a fountain of life, but the mouth of the wicked conceals violence. Hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all transgressions. On the lips of the discerning, wisdom is found, but a rod is for the back of him who lacks understanding. Wise men store up knowledge, but with the mouth of the foolish, ruin is at hand. A lot of communication proverbs right here. Some good ones. Six, the righteous receive blessings. The, wiz, the wicked man's mouth conceals violence. We've got this constant contrast between the blessings on the righteous and the sinister activities of the wicked. Then look at verse 7. The memory of the righteous is blessed. I'm not sure what that means. But I can think of a couple of things. Even thinking about righteous people of the past is a spiritual blessing. You grow from that. Or maybe it's the idea that the righteous sort of leave behind a legacy of good influence that continues. The righteous, you know, righteous Abel's blood still speaks. So, you know, even after they pass on, the righteous still live and have impact. But the name of the wicked will rot. Their character is rotting. So is their name. So is their reputation. Now, I don't think he means this primarily literally. I think this is more or less a sign. But you know there are some names people just don't tend to give to their children. How many Hitlers or Judases or Neros do you know? You know, and it's because their reputation stinks. You know, you see the long-term impact. You know, what we remember of the righteous from the past still blesses us. And we still wouldn't name our kid Nero, you know, 2,000 years later. Comments. Look at verse 8. I love this. The wise of heart will receive commands, but a babbling fool will be ruined. Now, what's he saying about the wise? He's obedient. He's obedient. He, listens. he listens. What does that tell you about the wise? For the wise to be willing to receive commands says what about it? He's humble. He's not thinking of himself as self-sufficient. He realizes his limitations. He knows he needs to listen. He knows he needs advice. He knows he needs to pay attention to the advice. That's why he's wise. The wise guy isn't the guy who thinks he knows everything. He's a wise guy, all right, but not in this sense. <laughs> the really wise person is the person who knows he needs to listen. He, want, he keeps seeking more counsel and more understanding. By contrast, what's the fool always doing? Talking and talking and talking. Have you ever noticed that he who knows the least usually shouts the loudest? Isn't that true? You know, someone said people wouldn't have known his head was so hollow if he weren't constantly ringing on it. <laughs> it's amazing. I've been in some of these situations, I won't go farther than that, where you're in some sort of a Bible study and you've got some very, very wise, knowledgeable, mature people in the Bible study and who does most of the talking? You know, somebody or a few people who really, you're like, 
you don't even realize what you don't know. <laughs> you know, you don't realize how that sounds. And, 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 it's, and that's doubly bad because what don't you do when you're talking? Listen and learn. We have said the, that we need to use our mouths productively. There's a difference between wisely appealing for people to turn to the Lord and babbling. A fool has little substance to what he says. It's superficial. And you know what light things tend to do in the water? Float to the top. You just hear them all the time. You see them all the time. You know, people who are deeper, not so obvious just on the surface. They speak at the right moment. This is a great proverb. The wise of heart will receive commands, but a babbling fool will be ruined. Lots of comments, yes. The, uh, later on in the Proverbs, it talks about this is... Uh, this is something that even affects all the way up the ladder, even to the king. For the king is a wise king if he listens to those that are around him. I think about our politicians, a lot of them. You listen to them and they might talk a good talk, but a lot of them are bad. They really aren't listening to their constituents as to what really needs to be done. Yes. A wise leader <laughs> listens to his advisors, doesn't always accept every piece of advice. But a wise leader doesn't think he always knows everything. He seeks to have good people around him, and he'll use them. Yes, Tim. Well, it's more than just listening, too, because it says, Mike says they will receive the command. Yes. So that's, you know, you, you take it in now and do something with it versus just, I heard what you said, but I'm going to go do this anyway. Yes. <laughs> Heeding, not just hearing. Yes. Look at nine. He who walks in integrity walks securely. He who perverts his ways will be found out. You ever done something wrong? How did you usually feel? You do something wrong, people don't know about it. Guilty and... Paranoid, worried, tense. You know, because what's going to happen when you get found out? And you probably will be. You know, because sooner or later it kind of is exposed. The man who walks in integrity has security. He doesn't have to worry about his past sins. He doesn't have to worry about covering things up and hoping they don't find, find out and what's going to happen when it all comes to light. You know, there's a lot of energy expended in cover-ups. And they usually don't work in the long run. Uh, so much better to do the right thing. You don't have anything to cover up. You, you really have security. Comments? Yeah. Just uh, another proverb to go along with what you're saying. Uh, Proverbs 28.1 says, The wicked flee when no one's pursuing them. Yeah. They feel like someone's going to find out eventually. There's, you know. What do you know about a very suspicious person? Very reserved. Yes. Her eyes twitch. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I was thinking about this. They're not trustworthy. Isn't that usually true? You think about that. But the guy who's paranoid, who's always, you know, suspicious and, and he thinks people are always lying to him, bet you anything he lies to people a lot. He always feel like somebody's going to cheat him out of something? Bet he's done that one before. You know, that kind of thing. You know, what about the guy who's always paranoid that his girlfriend is betraying him? Always thinking that she's probably looking at somebody. You know, every time she speaks to another man, she's probably got something going on with him. What do you pretty much know about that guy? He's not been very faithful in his life. You know, it's usually we reveal ourselves by our suspicions. <laughs>
The fool is all, and, uh, and the man who does wrong, he's always paranoid, he's suspicious, he's always worried, he's always suspecting the worst, because that's the way he's behaved. You might think about that, it's a pretty good rule of thumb. Wouldn't trust a guy who's real suspicious very far. Well, I see it more pronounced the other way around. Uh, you know, somebody who is very trusting, uh, you might say is naive, is often very trustworthy. You're exactly right. Yeah. It, you, if, if you're not a liar, you tend not to expect people to be lying to you. You, you tend to expect them to tell the truth. Because of what you always do. Um, I'm just thinking of a biblical example of this. And, um, Joseph and his brothers were so paranoid about things that were going to happen to them, like when um, bad things would happen. They'd be like, oh, this is because of what we did to Joseph. And, I mean, everything kind of boiled. They, ha they were so guilty and, and were always always on the edge like looking at things like oh man this is this is what we get for you know killing joseph and, i don't know see so much all this that we're talking about tell me something worse in life than a guilty conscience i can't think of anything peter the word integrity really means that you're the same all the way through you don't you don't have layers what, what's on the outside is what's on the inside, and so you don't have to retract. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's the right thing. It's so much better. Right. We're really telling ourselves sometimes, you know, like we start defending something that we did when no one is really, like, you know, accusing us of anything. <laughs> and it tells us, tells everyone else how we feel about it. I didn't touch those cookies. <laughs> No one ever spoke about the cookies. Why are you telling me this? <laughs> uh, good point. Human nature is uh, very interesting, isn't it? <laughs> uh, verse 10 is not a, an opposite proverb. There's really not so much of a contrast. He who winks the eye causes trouble and a babbling fool be wood. You know, I think the idea of winking the eye is the idea of somebody who's deceptive by his looks and so forth, he, you know, uh, misleads people and he creates trouble. Uh, he, he hurts other people. A blabbermouth is just going to really hurt himself. You know, so if you wink the eye, if you're deceptive and underhanded, you're going to create a lot of problems. And if you're a babbling fool, you're just going to ruin yourself. Um, comments? Gary, this is uh, a personal thing that I'm working on right now, but sarcasm is not as appealing as we might think sometimes. And maybe that's some of what he's talking about here, this, this winking, deceptive nature. There's a, a, a side to sarcasm that's very deceptive, and it's, it doesn't fall into Ephesians 4, like we talked about, or Ephesians 5, about those sound words. Yeah, um, kind of reminds me of 26.19. Actually, 18 and 19. Like a madman who throws firebrands, arrows, and death, so is the man who deceives his neighbor and says, Was I not joking? Let's <laughs> 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 uh, kind of play it around with some dangerous weapons. You know, be careful about that. Um, there are places for some sarcasm because the Bible has some. Uh, but there is a lot that's not appropriate. There's a lot of joking and um, teasing and other things that are just misleading. You know, wow. I mean, I don't know. It's, it's hard for a really honest person to, I don't know, carry on this deceptive thing very long, even in fun. And I'm not sure you want to do that very long or very much. I'm not sure you want people to start looking at you and thinking, wonder if he's just teasing me. <laughs> wonder if he's really being honest. I don't know. You can do what, with that what you want. But uh, that'd be the way I'd look at that. Yeah, I found that that's just something 
I feel like our generation that's really hard is Satan doesn't always just get us to to say, you know, oh, I accept this sin, I think it's great, you know, but he'll get us to laugh at it and he'll get us to wink the eye about the sin. I mean, he's definitely done that, I think, with homosexuality, big time. And just like worked in, you know, sinful things and gotten us to accept things by this deception and by joking about it and by going around it and not being having integrity about it, you know. Um, it's a contrast to what we talked about, like, you know, hating the false way and things like that. Good point. Shake. I think, along with the sarcasm thing, you know, I, I can be sarcastic with you because I'm close to you, but I might not be able to do with somebody else. I know recently I just started a new job, and the people I work with are very joking and sarcastic. And when I first started, it, it confused me because they're telling me, go do this, and I go do it, and they start laughing because they were being sarcastic. You know, that, that, that probably didn't even exist. So it makes my life really complicated because I'm going around trying to do my job. Snipe hunting. Yeah, exactly. Go <laughs> <laughs> catch the rat in the back with wings and I'm going trying to find the rat. Just making things up and it makes life complicated. We can make our conversations even more complicated. Now you can take, there's some things that I can say with somebody I'm close to that doesn't make things complicated. But if we start using a sarcastic tone all the time, this makes life more complicated than it has to be. Maybe off the subject, but I think it's worth saying at some point. I probably said it before, but it's. It, I, I've thought about it a lot more in recent years. We have to be careful about teasing. You know, I don't know. Every once in a while, I'll have a moment like this. Maybe you do too. Even if you're not somebody who's normally affected by that, has there ever been a time, maybe a, just a downtime? And somebody's teasing you, and you just kind of have this flash that maybe it's true. Maybe they really mean it. And it's kind of difficult. I think we have to be really watchful about that. And, and sometimes teasing can just be really ambiguous. You know, it, it can make it to where the person doesn't know. Are you serious or not? I mean, and it can be painful. One of the things that I try to do, if I, I'm, there's sometimes it's helpful to tease. But I usually try to make sure the person is very clear about the fact I'm not serious about it. And I'll often say, Did that, does that hurt you? Does that bother you? I may make the teasing a little less effective. But, <laughs> but you sure don't want to hurt somebody with that. And here's the other thing. And I've done this before, and I've realized it's not right. That is teasing to make a point. The thing about that that's not right is it's ambiguous. You know, it's not straightforward. You really half mean it, but you don't want to say it straightly because you don't want to hurt the person. So you say it teasingly, and he doesn't know whether to take it seriously or not. I don't think teasing is the right way to make a point. I really think we only ought to tease about something that we absolutely don't mean seriously. You know, I, I, you know if you're going to tease about somebody being ugly, don't make it to somebody who's really ugly. <laughs> I mean, that's, not, that's not funny then. You know, etc. You know, now, there are some things that are fair game. You know, and most of us try to signal some of those things. You know, I, I do that. Uh, and it's okay. I don't really care if I'm old or, you know, white-headed. It's kind of cool. But... <laughs> No, you don't think so, but hey, humor me. But if it's something that bothers me, then even if it's funny to you, it's not funny to me. I just think those are principles of kindness and thoughtfulness and consideration and love for each other. It's good for us to think about. It's good for us to be thoughtful and watchful, even if that didn't exactly fit. Anything else you want to say about all that? Yeah. Well, along with the, the, and part of the purpose is, because think of how distracting that is. Think of how unproductive that is now that I've got to waste, you know, I'm wasting thoughts now trying to figure out, well, did he mean that? Did, you know, is that true? Is that something I need to work on? Is, you know, so now I'm wasting all this time and it was just an off comment. So, and it goes back with what he mentioned in Ephesians 4. It, it, it's supposed to give grace to those who hear. I think it's helpful sometimes just to be always consistent in this and say it. I will say sometimes, if I'm teasing, I don't mean it seriously. If I, if I have something I want to criticize you for, I'm going to say it to you. I'm not going to tease you. 
So if you if I'm teasing you about it, you know I don't think it's a problem. And if if you if they know that, then it's much easier. But if you're trying to figure out is that half serious, it's just not fair. Say it seriously. It may hurt, but it probably hurts less than the teasing, and it's a lot more effective. Yes. And you know, sometimes the people that you're teasing sort of laugh at it too. You think, well, that doesn't bother them, so you know, I must, I can just continue to do it. But a lot of times, when 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 you get done that with that, a lot of times that's what hurts the most. When they, but they they pretend like they're they're laughing because it's funny, but inside it really hurts. Them. Good point. And I'll tell you something else. Don't tease somebody about their morality. Uh, this this is an illustration that uh, crossed my mind in Brazil it was a number of years ago. There were a couple of cousins in the church. One of them was about three years older than the other one. And so they were like 17 and 14, probably something like that. And the 14-year-old had tried to be pure. And he had not um, had physical contact of any kind with a girl. Well, in Brazil, I don't know what they say here, thankfully, but in Brazil, at that stage in life, if you haven't, you're a BV, Boca Virgem, virgin mouth. And, you know, that's supposed to be a put down. You know, you've never kissed anybody. You know, well, this 14-year-old was talking to me about how he was struggling with that because everybody was teasing him, including his 17-year-old Christian cousin who was just constantly putting him down for being virgin mouth. I went to the cousin, I was really close to him. I went to him and I said, what in the world are you doing? He said, oh, well, you know, I'm just teasing him, he just laughs. I said, what's he supposed to do, cry? You know, I mean, think about it. You know, don't tease about something like that. Don't tease in a way that could tempt him to do something that's maybe not even good for him to do. You know, think about those things. Uphold your brothers when they do the right thing. Don't tease him about that. You know, because it's hard. It's always hard to do the right thing. It's especially hard when your brothers sort of make fun of you for doing that. You know, protect the backs of our brothers when they do what's right. Other thoughts? What about uh, 11? The mouth of the righteous is a fountain of life, but the mouth of the wicked conceals violence. That's quite a uh, contrast, isn't it? You know, righteous bring life, and the wicked brings mischief. Uh, the righteous speak, the wicked conceals. I, I love that idea, though. The mouth of the righteous is a fountain of life. What do you What do you think of when you think of a fountain of life? Yeah, spring. So, what What does that What does it make you feel? What kind of atmosphere does the word "fountain of life" phrase "fountain of life" mean? Pure. Happy. Happy. <laughs> well said. Yeah. Vi vitality, energy, refreshment. You know, a, a, a wise man who speaks just gives life, gives blessing to those around him. You know, it, it, it's, it's to the betterment of, 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 the, whole, of the whole community. But, but the mouth of the wicked covers up his violence. You know, he's trying to hide his misbehavior. What, what a contrast. You know, you want the wise man to speak. When the wise man speaks, wow, it's such a blessing. You know, it just, it just inspires, it encourages. But the, the wicked man, whether he speaks or is quiet, is dangerous either way. Comments or questions? I think it's such a, a beautiful image of like, you know, this fountain. It's a, uh, you know, a fountain is usually where like, you know, water is like coming up and it gets pretty and it, it's, it's, it's refreshing, you know, is the idea, the idea, the idea there. And maybe it's even a kind of a contrast to like the stolen water, like we were talking about in the last chapter of like, you know, the wicked have like this form of vitality or whatever, but it's cheap and it's secondhand. And this is like pure source of encouragement and refreshment. Peter. Can I find another proverb? Sure. Um, 12, 18. There is one who speaks like the piercings of a sword, but the tongue of the, tongue of the wise brings healing. 
Good proverbs. Lots of proverbs on the value of wise speech. David. It's not always recognized that the speech of the, the wise uh, are helpful. If you have an environment of wickedness, like when Jeremiah was trying to preach to the the people and tell them what was best for them, that would bring life to them, and it really would have been a fountain of life for many of them paid attention. He was look that they, they were saying, you know, oh here he comes again. Look, he's got bad things to say. And, um, other prophets are the same. There were kings that says, oh that prophet he never says anything good. You know, those are the kinds of times where the environment is bad, but you still need to speak what's coming. Yes, amen. Good point. Other thoughts? Yes, no. Kind of on Stephen's um, thought about how it's supposed to be refreshing and attractive. And then the second part almost seems um, like it's almost an imitation of the attractive, kind of what he was saying. You can almost imagine two fountains. One's pure, and the other one looks like it would be, but really it's just, it's just a sham. It's just a cover-up for what's really there. That, and it almost it harkens back to, not, um, not thinking the stolen water, but just the wisdom and the foolish woman how she had some of even the same tactics of getting people's attention, but she was completely different road, completely different product. Amen. Other thoughts? Compare it with a lot, and that thought there, compare a glass of water and a glass of grain alcohol. They both look clear and pure. On, just on sight, you wouldn't think there was any difference, but there's a lot of difference. Yep. So I suspect this is a good time to stop here since it's uh, nearly 12. I know that's not right. But <laughs> Five minutes ago. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I know that. Um, <laughs> why don't we? Uh, why don't we have a prayer and then we'll turn it over to Chris for uh, further instructions. Jacob, would you lead us in?